Well, this morning we continue our series called Sin No More in a message entitled Sin No More Convinced and Convicted. We brought you to John chapter 8 to use this as what I call a visual template to give you an illustration of an actual scenario that has taken place that sin was at the center of the controversy. So let us begin by reading John 8 verses 2 through 11. Early in the morning he came, that is Jesus, again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. As we've been looking and using this account as a visual template for our study of sin, we see again sin as the centerpiece of the controversy and that there are four perspectives being placed upon this controversy. There is the perspective of Jesus Christ, the perspective of the religious leaders, the perspective of the people who had gathered there previously to be taught by Jesus himself, and the perspective of the woman. And as we've been working our way through this template, we've been looking at sin from these different perspectives, and this morning we arrive to the last of the four. And that is the woman caught in the act of adultery herself. And we are going to look at sin from her perspective. And our goal, our objective for this morning is to prepare you and to equip you so you do not find yourself in the same scenario in which she found herself, where her sin had been exposed by all. We want to prevent you from even getting to the point where you fall into that sin to begin with. We want you to be proactive in your Christian faith. We want you to be ready for when temptation stands at the door and Satan tries to drag you into your old life once again and instead of reflecting the glory of God in and through your actions, you once again demonstrate the old life and the old nature by living in the sin that once held dominion over you. So how do we do that? How do I bring you to that point? As I prayed and I sought the Lord and sought His Scriptures, I found out that there's two very key components that we must truly embrace if we are going to prepare ourselves for those moments that temptation stands at the door. First, we must be convinced. 
We must be convinced as believers in Jesus Christ that we no longer have to live the way we once lived. That we are brand new creations in Christ. Now you think that would be a given. You would think that would be what some would call a no-brainer. But no, I don't think that's the case. I think many Christians really struggle with that reality. We need to be convinced that we are a new creation in Christ and we are no longer subjected to the reign of sin in our lives any longer. Secondly, we must cultivate a sensitivity to conviction. Conviction. Allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us at those moments, at those times that will allow us to react in a godly fashion to the temptation that is presented before us. For that is the tactic of Satan. The tactic of Satan is temptation. And there are two vehicles of temptation. Understand you have Satan and you have this world. For all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and pride of life. There are two vehicles of temptation that these things are going to placate. They are going to try to manipulate. They are going to try to take advantage of your old nature, your flesh. And drag you away from what God would want you to have. And the new life that God would have you to walk in. And try to bring you once again under the the reign of sin that Christ has done so much to free you from. So we must be convinced and we must be convicted. So how do I bring you to a place where you're convinced? Shall we continue as sin as, in, as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, you know, there's a chapter of the Bible that actually answers that question for us. That question was anticipated and answered by Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 6, if you'd make your way there. We're going to spend the rest of the time in these 23 verses. And in these 23 verses, in his response, shall we continue in sin... Paul's going to say, you cannot, you need not, you must not, and you had not better. He is going to convince us by stating you cannot continue in sin, you need not continue in sin, you must not continue in sin, and you had better not continue in sin. And that is what we are going to look at together as we go through Romans chapter 6 this morning. We are going to allow Paul to convince us through this text that we no longer have to live as we once did. It is what is called a positional truth. Now this is something that's very important for all of us to understand. There are positional theological truths that we need to grasp as Christians and allow to play out practically in our lives, okay? So there's a positional truth that we need now to embrace and by faith live out practically in our everyday lives. Biblical theology is not meant to be and be restrained to head knowledge alone. Biblical theology is always meant to impact and be lived out in some way, some shape, some form. And so this morning, I bring you the positional truth of your standing before God the Father in Christ 
to allow you to practically live that truth out in your life by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to be shooting for this morning. And Paul begins with us by reasoning with us here in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, as he states for us, you cannot because you are united to Christ, therefore you cannot continue to live in sin. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Well, what shall we say then? Right away, Paul is bringing us to a place in the letter where he's already anticipating a question by his readers that is no doubt based upon that which they had already previously read. Paul had introduced to them grace. In the first five chapters of Romans, grace has been introduced to them. And for many who are reading this for the first time, after Paul had wrote it uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this concept of grace would have been something very new to them. As individuals who had once undoubtedly been led through their lives as Jewish individuals by the command of the law, now Paul was saying that the law could never have its perfect work within them, and therefore the grace of God succeeded where the law failed. The Old Testament law was given to us that we may know what sin is and lead us to a place where we understand that we can do nothing about it. As much as we try, as diligent as we apply ourselves, we are never perfectly going to satisfy all the requirements of the law, which pushes us in a state of hopelessness, but also in a state of need. And out of that position of need, we cry out to God for a Savior, and of course, that's what He gave us in the person of Jesus Christ. So as Paul also demonstrated for us in the first five chapters of Romans, the issue of justification, how this death, resurrection of Jesus Christ can justify one who places their faith in him. But again, these are new concepts for these readers. And undoubtedly questions have been created in their mind and begin to rise in their mind and say, well, wait a minute, now if we don't have the law to govern us, is grace sufficient enough? If you tell people that the law is no longer necessary and that we are saved by grace through faith, uh, wait a minute now. Uh, this is going to create anarchy. People are just going to be doing what's right in their own eyes should sin continue. Oh, and Paul, you mentioned that where sin abounds, grace abounds even further. Now, wait a minute now. Should I continue to sin to make grace all the more attractive and bring further glory to God? And he says then, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Question mark. Uh, by no means. No way, Jose. Not going there. Bozo, no, no. Red flag. Okay? By no means. Should sin continue in our life in any way, shape, or form because the grace of God now governs us rather than the law? How can we, asking a question again, who died to sin still live in it? That doesn't make any sense to him. Do you not know that all of us who were, have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we had been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old selves was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In verse 3, he uses a word that I want to bring to your attention. They are kind of the bookends of this first section of the text. Do you not know? Do you not understand? Do you not get it? That's what he's saying here. Now, he's saying it in a manner in which it's rhetorical and that you need to get it. Don't you understand what happened the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ? And then in verse 11, he uses a second word that is translated in the ESV, considered, if you're familiar with the New King James, it it was the word reckon. And it means that we are to reconcile, we are to take account of, and live accordingly. When a person reconciled their finances in that culture, they not only did it so they would know exactly how much wealth they had, but they also did it to allow them to live a lifestyle in which they chose to live. Once they knew the wealth that they possessed, they lived accordingly. Does that make sense? So Paul is saying here, consider, take account, reckon this truth, know it, understand it, and now live accordingly. That's what he's saying here. So those two words we must pick out for ourselves. We are to know this. And we are to live according to this truth. And what truth is that? That we are dead to sin. That we are dead to sin. And Paul uses two examples for us here in our text that would have automatically reminded and been perfect visual illustrations for the original readers. He said, remember when you were baptized. And he's speaking of water baptism here. Remember what that symbolized as you were brought forth after committing yourself to faith in Jesus Christ. For biblical baptism always succeeded a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so when an individual is seeking baptism, it's always after they have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Why? It was meant to demonstrate to all of friends and family and to all who were witnessing that something unique has taken place in the heart of that individual. It was to demonstrate an inward truth outwardly. 
Now, baptism saves nobody. It is our profession of faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. And we are baptized out of obedience. I agree with the, the uh, individuals who wrote in Romans chapter 6 that stated that Paul was addressing an audience that undoubtedly equated salvation and baptism as the beginning of the Christian life. Once they were saved, they were then baptized to demonstrate that salvation. And he reminds them, remember when you were brought back into the water? And again, he's speaking of immersion here. Don't you understand that what you were doing was demonstrating to all that like Christ, you died to the old nature at that moment. Now, of course, that moment actually preceded it. It actually occurred when we came to faith in Christ. But now we're just demonstrating an inward truth outwardly. Now, when we baptize people, we just don't bring them out into the water and then hold them there under, and then Chris goes ahead and sings six more songs. People then clap. We then go to fellowship over a great meal. And where we baptize people, then hit the water slides as I hold them under, right? That's not the conclusion of baptism, right? What is the conclusion of baptism? You bring them up out of the water, representing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's stating here in Romans chapter 6 in the first 11 verses. He's stating, remember, that as you were baptized, you were identifying yourself with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And remember, he died to sin once and for all, and he was raised a brand new individual. Same with you. When you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, your old life died. You don't have to go back there anymore. It doesn't have to reign over you anymore. It doesn't have to have that control over you any longer. As one wrote, he says, There is a sense in which a believer attends the funeral of his old self when he is baptized. Isn't that interesting? Did you ever think of your baptism as your personal funeral? As he goes under the water, he is saying, All that I was as a sinful son of Adam was put to death at the cross. And as he comes up out of the water, he is saying, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And again, all of these events were meant to parallel the truth of the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants us to know this. He wants us to take it to account that we therefore would live accordingly. Stating here in a uh, rhetorical manner, asking us to think for ourselves in a logical fashion that if Christ died and if Christ rose again, won't we also die and live in the same newness of life that he lived? Isn't that what he promised us? Isn't that what he is giving us? A positional truth being learned and understood and then lived out practically in the life of the believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying here. You cannot continue in sin because you are dead to it. It's illogical. Don't go there. You don't have to go there anymore. The old life is dead, and the only one who brings it back is you. You don't have to do it again. Those things that you were subjected to, those things you were in bondage to, those things that kept you from God and brought about death are no longer 
the reality of your life. As one wrote, he said, and I love the way he put this, this is a positional truth. When Jesus died to sin, he died as our representation. He died not only as a substitute, that is, for us and in our place, but he also died as our representative, that is, as us. Therefore, when he died, we died. He died to the whole question of sin, settling it once and for all. All those who are in Christ are seen by God as having died to sin. Now, that's interesting. Do you know that before God the Father, through Christ, you look perfect? Because the sacrifice of Christ was so significant and sufficient that it paid for past, present, and future sins. Now, practically, is that a reality in our life yet? No. We still struggle day by day with the old nature, the old life. But we are a work in progress. The positional truth is becoming more and more or should be becoming more and more a point of reality in our lives day by day. It is called sanctification, where we are being brought out of the world and into a conformity in Jesus Christ. And as we look at our life as a totality in its grand scheme, we should see us changing day by day, slowly but surely in some cases, into more of the image of Jesus Christ than our old image reflected, where we were governed by our own passions, our own lust, and sin itself. He wants you to know this. He wants you to live accordingly. Again, as he stated, when the Lord Jesus Christ died, he died to the whole subject of sin once and for all. He died to sin's claims, its wages, its demands, its penalties. He finished the work and settled the account so perfectly that it never needs to be repeated. Now that he lives, he lives to God. In one sense, of course, he has always lived to God, but now he lives to God in new relationship as the risen one and in a new sphere where sin can never enter in again. Point number one, you cannot sin because you are dead to sin in Christ. Our second point, you need not sin, verses 12 through 14. Let's look together. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace." You need not sin. You need not sin. If we truly understand the whole concept of freedom, I would argue that most people's definition and understanding of true freedom is one-sided. Let me explain. Their understanding of true freedom is to be allowed to do anything that they personally want to do. Their idea of true freedom is that I can do anything that I want to do unobstructed. 
That's very lopsided, isn't it? The true definition of freedom is not only being able to do what we want to do, but not having to do those things that we don't want to do. That's true freedom. Not having to do those things that we do not want to do. And Paul's saying that the freedom that Christ has given you in Him, in this new life, you do not have to obey sin any longer. You do not have to obey the old nature. You do not have to present yourself to the old nature. And I want you to know that uh, and understand and highlight, if you will, the word present because he uses it so many times from this point forward. And he begins by saying, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Number one, you need not because sin has no dominion over you. It's been broken by grace. Whatever needs to be done, do it that sin no longer reigns in your mortal body. Whatever needs to be done, whatever you were in bondage to, get rid of it. Clean out the closets of the mind and the hearts of yourself. Get in there. Work it. Okay? Get rid of anything. Don't let anything remain that would once again drag you into that old life. For some of you, it's your computer. You may be struggling with pornography. Get rid of it. Toss it out. But you don't know how much I paid. Hey, you don't know how much it's going to cost you to keep it. For some people, it's alcohol. For other people, it's drugs. Whatever it is, get rid of it. Some people, it's unhealthy relationships. Get out of it. Do whatever you need to do to get out of the reign of sin in your life. Because you're already free from it. Now you just got to clean it. Just say, that's it, Lord. By the power of the Spirit, I don't want to do any of those things that I once did. And secondly, in verse 13, look what it says here. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't let sin play you. Don't let sin play you. I don't need to go there. I'm dead to that. I don't need to live that way any longer in the power of the Spirit. I'm free from that. I'm not going there and I'm not presenting myself to sin to allow it to play with me as it has in the past. Now, does anybody notice something that's contained within these two verses? It's choice. This is where we submit ourselves to God on a daily basis, and we pray that prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden that was so aptly demonstrated for us. Not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. That's what we need to pray on a daily basis. Lord, I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to present my members of my bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. I gave too much of my life to Satan before I became a Christian. I'm not giving him anymore. So be convinced that you need not sin. So how do we do that? Paul later demonstrates it for us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And you can read these on your own. I'll read them for you this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what God wants from you. Not to present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness any longer, but present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice and unto righteousness. No more. I'm not going there. Number three, Paul brings us into verse 15. And he states for us, you must not continue in sin because it would bring sin in again as your master. Here it is as a command. Now some believe at this point, as verse 15 is very similar to verse 1, that another question that he is anticipating arising in the mind of his readers would say, well, what about just a little sin? Uh, okay, you know, we're not to live a life of sin anymore, but what about it just once in a while? Others believe that what Paul was anticipating here was that, okay, well, if we are not to sin to allow grace to abound and God to get further glory, don't you think that removing the restraints of the law on the life of the individual is opening up that person just to complete chaos and havoc? Meaning, if they don't have those restraints, and, they, and they're saved by the grace of God, will that not be a license for them to continue on and to sin, either in small ways or large ways, and it not really matter? Is that what Paul's saying? Now, I will tell you that I believe that many Christians have understood grace to be like that. But see, a true understanding of God's grace shows you and demonstrates that grace is not only our great liberator, but it's also our great constrainer. Grace constrains me. Because why would I ever, in the light of the grace that God has shared with me, why would I ever rebel against him? It was the ultimate act of love. It was the ultimate demonstration, this unmerited favor in which he has given me, this ability above and beyond myself. Why would I then ever turn on him in that regard? It's an ultimate restrainer. Not only is it the ultimate liberator, but it's also the ultimate restrainer or constrainer. And it keeps me in line with the Lord. But as he anticipates either one of these, listen to what he says, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin? And that word sin there is a very specific tense in the Greek. It's in the eros tense, past tense. And it may have the sense of committing an act of sin now and then, or in contrast to a life of sin. There's grammatical uh, uh, elements to it that may indicate that, or they are simply asking, but if one has grace, doesn't it mean they're just going to live for a license of sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, are we to sin, he's saying? Here again, by no means, as we stated the Greek, no way, Jose, or red flag, warning, danger, danger, Will Robinson. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one in whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you 
were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to understand the teachings to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's stating that these are difficult theological things that I'm speaking of. I know that they're new, and I'm putting them in a manner in which you may understand them. It's a contextualization allowing them to identify with what he has just taught. That's what he is saying there. I'm putting it in human terms. Because of your natural limitations, for just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He is stating here that you must not go back. Because understand that to whoever you submit yourself to, it is to them that you are in slavery to, being sin and the old life, or the new life in Jesus Christ. This is where, in the process of sanctification, an individual can frustrate the work of God. Not hinder it, because God is the author and finisher of our faith, and He will complete the work that He started in us. But on that day-by-day progression, we can frustrate that. If we choose to live for ourselves, or choose at moments not to obey God, or to fall into temptation, into sin, we can slow that process, hinder it, we can frustrate it. That's why the choice Paul makes out, it's just so clear. Do not present yourself. He couldn't say that unless you could. But he wants you to know that you're not truly free unless you submit yourself to God. How many people in the United States of America who boast on the, about their freedom, when you actually begin to talk to them, you discover that they're not truly free at all? Either they are just incredibly in bondage to financial debt, that they can't get beyond that, and they think they're free, but in actuality, they're not free at all, are they? Or when it comes to drinking, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to relationships, people think that they're free, but in actuality, they're in bondage. They've allowed that freedom, exercised in an ill manner, to bring them back into bondage rather than to lead them to further freedom. Paul says, don't go back there. You can't go back there. You shouldn't go back there. You don't want to go back there. You must not go back there. But we are to present ourselves to Christ and not to sin any longer. Sin is like a snowball rolling down a hill. Have you ever done that in the winter? We can't do that right now here, can we? It's 65 in December here in Chicago. If that's not a sign that the Lord's coming back, and the, I don't know what is, but we're getting closer. But have you ever stood on top of a hill and you took a, a, a snowball the size of a basketball, and it was a good-sized hill, and the, the hill was covered with snow, And you began to push that snowball, and then it caught the momentum of the incline, and it started just barreling down the hill. What's going to happen to that snowball by the time it gets to the end? It's going to be much bigger, right? I will tell you that in 20 years of pastoring, Christians 
who aren't diligent in dealing with the small issues of their life, the small concerns, the small sins, often find themselves in one of those spirals going down the hill very quickly. Sin leads to greater sin over and over and over again. You must be aware of that. You must be conscientious of that. Where righteousness leads to sanctification. Meaning, the more you obey the Lord, the more you allow the Lord to work in and through your life, the sanctification process then moves along and you come out of the world and you begin to conform into the image of Jesus Christ. As one wrote, he says, before their conversion, the believers had surrendered their bodies as slaves to all kinds of uncleanness and to one kind of wickedness after another. Now they should dedicate those same bodies as slaves of righteousness so that their lives would be truly holy. God just doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants you all, not just parts of you. And lastly, Paul brings it to a close in verse 20 when he states, You had better not, for it would end in disaster. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But here's the question he has for you. Verse 21. Okay. He challenges the actual quality of the freedom that they thought that they had while they were in sin and separated from righteousness. There are always going to be those who believe that the Christian life is so restrictive that it's going to limit you from every aspect of fun and happiness and joy that you could possibly ever experience. Is that reality? No. That's not reality at all. So Paul asks the question in verse 21. Notice here with me. He says here, and I can just imagine him scratching his little Paul beard, if he had one. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What benefit was that sin in your life? What did that sin bring about in your life that you're so proud of today? Okay, so you were free from righteousness and you were under the bondage of sin and you had the fruit of that sin, but now you're ashamed of that sin. But what were you so proudful of that you'd ever want to go back to it? Interesting question. Interesting question. And there will be always those who want to debate you. But I want my freedom, man. I want to be able to do those things that I want to do, enjoy my life. How much are you really enjoying life? I didn't realize how much I could enjoy this life until I came to Jesus Christ. Then I realized a whole new joy. A joy that I would never have apart from Jesus Christ, that the world can never obtain in and of themselves. But he asks the question, what fruit, what are you getting from it? That you are now ashamed of those things. For the end of those things is death. He's not speaking just here of eternal death. But he's speaking of the death that sin brings about in people's lives. We see that death day by day destroying people's lives who are living in sin, aren't we? We're seeing sin destroy, erode a person from the inside out. They're crumbling. 
and they don't even realize it. And the sin just keeps eroding away at their makeup of a being. And they don't see it. They don't get it. Sin is destroying relationships. Sin is destroying lives. Sin is destroying families, etc. Sin doesn't bring about anything that God would say is good. And yet it destroys things over and over and over again. And that is what he is asking here. He says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. It leads you out of the world and into conformity into Christ. And its end, listen to this, is eternal life. The choice is yours. You can continue living in sin. I don't know how a true believer can continue living in sin. I, I don't think that's possible. I think you need to check your heart uh, before God to see if that's really the case, if that's the lifestyle you choose. But, he says, submitting yourself unto God leads to sanctification and in the end is eternal life. Stating it this way, this is the worst it's ever going to get for you. It's only going to get better. For the person apart from Christ, this is the best it's ever going to be for them. It's only going to get worse. And then he leads or ends with this verse that all of us should commit to memory this morning. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As one stated and as I close, the conversion changes a man's position completely. Now he is free or she is free from sin as his or her master. And he became a willing slave to God. The result is a holy life now, an everlasting life. And at the end of the journey, eternal life waits for them. Of course, the believer has eternal life now too. But this verse refers to that life that in its fullness, including the glorified resurrection body of Jesus Christ, begins right here, right now, today. Hey, we don't need to live in sin any longer. Let's leave that behind and go full on for God. I need to convince you of this positional truth that you may live it out practically. To avoid those opportunities of sin through the vehicle of temptation, which we'll talk about more in the coming weeks, I need to convince you that you are no longer subjugated to your old life in the flesh now Christ reigns, you are a new creation, move forward, go on, and enjoy that which God has for you. Don't go back. Don't go back.